these land management departments have tried to keep Native people off their lands through the settler colonial laws about land management and fishing and what is best for the environment. And it's often pushing Native people away from their traditions and, and life ways. That weapon of mass destruction, when they've taken out the mountains, they've taken out the water supplies, they've changed all of the freshwater systems under those lakes. And so that's kind of why I say, you know, it is a weapon of mass destruction. Native people didn't just lay down and die in California, they actively fought back and then also actively went underground with ceremonies and traditions that are passed down towards generations to people like me now. We've been um, fighting back against settler colonialism for a very long time. Welcome to Challenging Colonialism, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of Indigenous California. An important note from the start, the producers are two white male educator academics, and these are not our stories. This podcast will center Native voices, and our intention is to highlight the significant work being done by Indigenous communities to challenge ongoing colonialism and to broadcast information about the resistance and resilience of Indigenous California in the past, the present, and the future. A final note before we begin, this podcast may contain graphic descriptions of slavery, genocide, and sexual violence. You are listening to the second part of a four-part series, Weapons of Mass Destruction, Dams and Colonization. Welcome to part two, A History of Resistance. Ayuki Hutkich, Mkaka. Hello, how are you? My name's Mkaka, my Kaduk name's Mkaka. My surname is uh, Ronald Raymond Reed Sr. I'm a Kaduk tribal member. The dam removal process is necessary, but it doesn't stop there. And it doesn't stop with we start managing the forest properly neither. But we have to start allowing the people to understand what was actually erased by America. Indigenous science is here to stay. We were not supposed to be here. We're supposed to be extinct. But our world ideology allows us to exist in the most adverse conditions because this is the first time We've been in these positions. We've been through pandemics. We've been through the ice age. We've been through extreme drought. Why do you think all of our methodology of management is conservative? Never take more than you need. So I think it's up to leadership on both sides of the aisle, Western science and indigenous science, to bring the models, the economics, the social models to the table so we can depict what is the best thing for life here on this planet. It's very simple, but Western science makes it very complex. So take out those dams, cultural fires, re-educate our community on fire ecology, and start working with nature. I think society would be a lot better in the comfortable basin than it is right now. I'm uh, Colleen Sisk, and I'm the chief of the Winnemum Wintu tribe, and our homeland is off of the McLeod. Uh, watershed area on Mount Shasta, and we kind of watch all the salmon all the way to the ocean. There is a movement in the world right now about indigenous knowledge and allowing the indigenous knowledge uh, step up from the academic knowledge and start assisting because 
I'm not a fish biologist, but you know what? My dad and everybody grew up on the river. We have hundreds of years of how that was, how that it should be, how the fish move, stories of, of how fish get to one place to another, how they relate to the river. And when they go there, everything uh, is better. The water is better. The trees are better. The soil is better. The birds are better. And for us, you know, they're a keystone animal that rivers have to have. And if people could realize that we're not just talking about water for salmon, but these salmon actually clean the riverbeds. I mean, they dig nests that go down like a foot and a half, and they turn those rocks over. And when they turn those rocks over, the river gets clean. The water systems between the groundwater and the river, the surface water, can work. If it gets plugged up, I mean, you got to think of your drain. When it gets plugged up, it just don't function. That's what happens to rivers without salmon. And I don't think enough people realize that we're not just talking about salmon to eat. We're talking about salmon for good water, clean water, drinkable water. And if if more if we could educate more people to, you know, start thinking about these and go and investigate some other things, but help us, help us to do this. Uh, my people lived there. My dad lived there. My grandma and everybody, all my relatives lived on that river that was going to be flooded. And so for us, it is like ground zero. They've they've um, wiped us out. You know, they've taken everything that that we had, lost everything. And for us, nothing was replaced. And I think some people can identify with that who are still waiting for FEMA to do something, to to assist, you know, and so that weapon of mass destruction is more than just people issues, but it is uh, issues of nature. When they've taken out the mountains, they've taken out the water supplies, they've changed all of the freshwater systems under those lakes. And so that's kind of why I say you know, it is a weapon of mass destruction. And most people don't really know what mass destruction really is. You know, the the thing that I see the most, when the water recedes and you see that all the clear cutting that happened for the way of the dam, which, you know, now they find is like maybe not have been the best idea to do, but they uh, clear cut huge groves of oak trees as well as, you know, the conifers, they clear-cut a whole hydrology system that provided and supplied water throughout the year. You know, people didn't really understand the hydrology system that works from roots of trees, and instead they just cut those trees down, killing all the roots and storing water on top of, you know, a perfectly uh, good water system. And they changed, you know, they changed all of the uh, habitat for fish, birds, um, four-legged animals that would take care of those places. And our, our water keepers, like the beavers, like the wolves, they changed all of that. 
in those flooded areas. But the other thing I think, you know, for Shasta, the Sacramento River was heavily mined. And people don't realize that those mines, like the copper smelter mines, were just left standing. They weren't capped. They just flooded them. And so those mines continued to bleed into the lake, the lake water. So you have a lot of mercury and, you know, other toxins that are gathering up at the bottom of these, uh, at least Lake Shasta. And so it's like, okay, so you just want to build it higher and let some people later down the road have to figure out how do you neutralize all that toxic waste that, you know, could be let out of the dam by an earthquake. You know, it sits on a fault line. It's like it's probably the worst place to have a dam. Hi, I'm Beth Rose Middleton Manning. I'm a faculty member in the Department of Native American Studies at UC Davis within Putwin Homelands. I am Afro-Caribbean and Eastern European, uh, born and raised in Sierra Miwok homelands outside of Jackson and Pioneer, California. So dams are really an instrument of colonialism and settlement. Um, the Bureau of Reclamation, the first director, Francis Newlands, was known to be a white supremacist and to advocate for repopulating the West with what he called a desirable class of people. And in order to facilitate that repopulation, uh, he needed to, to dam uh, rivers and, and reallocate flows to facilitate agricultural development. My name is Brittany Arona. I am a Hoopa Valley tribal member and a PhD candidate in Native American Studies and Human Rights at UC Davis. The Klamath tribes are terminated at the height of the development and construction of uh, water infrastructure on the Klamath. And so they lose a lot of their land rights at a time when that tribe is actually very much thriving. Um, and the government decides that they're actually not acting like Indians anymore, or they're not able to take care of their lands anymore. And so you see all of these assaults on indigenous sovereignty that occur through also determining that the Klamath Reservation is abandoned, which opens up the ability for uh, the government to enact non-native fishing rights onto the Klamath Basin. So in 1902, uh, with the passage of the reclamation, pro the federal reclamation project, you get the construction of these dams um, between the 19 early 1900s into the 1960s. Um, but the Klamath River dams changed the way in which um, salmon interact with the water, the ways in which Native people can interact with the water, both the Klamath tribes up in the upper basin and then lower basin tribes such as the Hupayurakruk and Shasta peoples. So dams cut off salmon runs. These dams are also constructed hydroelectric and diversion purposes, um, but they've really gone past their living point. My name is Craig Tucker. I'm a natural resources policy consultant to the Karuk tribe, and I help coordinate the tribe's efforts to remove the lower four dams on the Klamath River. So PG&E owns a project called the Potter Valley Project. It's two, it's one big dam, one small dam with a diversion. They divert 
the, the project was built to divert water from the eel to the Russian. And in so doing, the water goes through a powerhouse. It is an old project. The powerhouse does not, it's another one where the power project doesn't really make economic sense anymore. So PG&E announced plans that it was going to orphan the project, which means, hey, if anybody else wants it, step right up. And if no one steps right up, then FERC would then direct PG&E to put together a surrender plan and application. And surrender, you don't really know what you're going to get out of that, right? It doesn't necessarily mean removing all the dams and putting everything the way you found it. It could mean that, but you just don't know until you go through the process. So Russian River interests are really hooked on the water. So they've been getting this significant diversion of 60,000 acre feet or more of water from the eel to the Russian. And of course, the Russian has a lot of water users, um, both municipal water users as well as agricultural water users. So Humboldt County, Mendocino County, Sonoma Water Agency, Caltrout, and the Round Valley Indian Tribe came up with a plan to build a partnership, we call it the Key Basin Partnership, to try and take over that project. And in taking it over, we would remove the biggest dam. We would <clears throat> make changes to the point of diversion to be fish friendly and still move water from the eel to the Russian in the winter when there's an abundance of water in the eel. So we've been working on that but we're really we've struggled to raise the kind of capital you need. It's, it, we, we think it costs about eighteen million dollars to do all studies necessary to put together a license application, and then we have to we would have to figure out a entity to actually take the project and manage it into perpetuity. So we're also really interested in the Eel River dam removal efforts that are going on um, up there to protect the Eel River, which actually stopped running this year, had a period of time where it stopped running, which is really scary um, when a river stops running. Um, and it speaks to the detrimental environmental impacts that these dams and water reclamation policy has um, to these Northern California rivers. And so we're really invested in Northern California rivers that so we're trying to reach more down to the Bay Area and the Bay Delta region um, because most of Northern California water is diverted to Southern California um, via the aqueduct system. I think something that's really important when we're talking about um, dam construction and water infrastructure and reclamation in California specifically is that we don't really go back into the start of colonization and how that impacts um, Native people through like these negative environmental actions that are occurring at the beginning of colonization. So if you're looking at the California gold rush period, the Hoopa Valley, I focus a lot on Hoopa because I am Hoopa, but the Hoopa Valley isn't necessarily colonized until the 1850s. Um, so we, we are a relatively late period of colonization 
in the state of California, you see a lot of gold mining activities that create mercury in the water that we're still dealing with on top of the genocide that is occurring in the state. The first legislature passes this law that reproves the genocide and indentured servitude of Indian people through militias. So you're seeing um, just incredible acts of violence, not just only through like these laws and policies um, that are enacted in the first California legislature at the beginning of statehood, but also through the physical violence that Native people are enduring at the height of um, the period during and after the California gold rush. So the American period. So it's an incredibly violent time uh, for Native people. But during this first legislature, this is also when they're beginning to talk about water development in the state. So it's not just about gold during this period, it's also about building California as an agricultural place. So I say all of that because I think it's really important to understand that the basis of land dispossession in California starts very, very early. But Native people are continuously fighting back against that, whether that means they're um, up in Northwestern California, they're fighting back against these militias. Native people didn't just lay down and die in California, they actively fought back. And then also actively went underground with ceremonies and traditions that are passed down towards generations to people like me now. But in 2002, there is a devastating um, fish kill on the Klamath River Basin, and it kills upwards to 80,000 mature Chinook Coho salmon. And so mature salmon are very big. You can see them, they've lived for a very long time. Um, they come, they, salmon are really amazing species. Like every salmon that is in a river is connected to that river very strongly. Um, they go back to the rivers that they spawn from. So we, as Hupa, Yurok, and Kruk peoples, maintain very strong ties to those salmon. Um, we see them as relatives. Like their importance is in that we take care of them and they take care of us. So at the very core of it, um, taking care of our lands and waters is essential to being Hupa, Yurok, and Kruk people. Like we have to do, the, we have to do it. Like even if I wasn't an academic, I think I would still be doing this type of work because it really matters to me. Um, but in 2002, there's this um, salmon die-off and it happens actually during the Yurok World Renewal Ceremonies, which is especially devastating. So the World Renewal Ceremonies, um, each tribe puts on their own ceremonies. And um, we believe in doing that, we're remaking the world, not only for us, but for everybody else. So remaking the world and providing all the things that we all need to survive. And so when that happens during the Iraq ceremonies, it's especially devastating for tribes because it's a time of renewal and ceremonial importance. Um, and so almost immediately after the fish kill occurs and it occurs um, for a variety of reasons in 2001, there was a drought um, and there wasn't enough water to go around. And initially the United States government and the Department of the Interior decided to send the water to Coho and Chinook salmon on the lower Klamath. And then there's a period of civil disobedience from farmers and community, white community members up on the Klamath Falls and they destroy some irrigation uh, dikes 
and start doing these protests. And then the Department of the Interior changes their mind, sends water up into the Klamath, um, the upper Klamath for irrigation. And then that's when the fish kill occurs. And it's really devastating. To, I was a teenager when it, it occurred, but it's really devastating to remember when that happened because the whole community came together and mourned it. It's like seeing your relatives on the side of the road is awful. And, but this really starts a concentrated effort to remove these dams on the upper basin. So the dam subject for removal are J.C. Boyle, um, Copco 1, Copco 2, and um, Iron Gate. So these are the four dams that have been um, determined to be adequate for removal on the Klamath Basin and were de determined to be causing the most detrimental um, environmental issues. I'm uh, Mark Dadigan. I am a third year PhD student in Native American studies at UC Davis. You know, I'm originally from Chicago area, which is Potawatomi Ojibwe homelands. Um, I'm a non-native allied scholar. The dam is all wrapped up into these frontier narratives, right? Of that this was empty wilderness, that you know, essentially that white people had some kind of religious God ordains right to seize this land and to occupy it because they were the ones who are gonna make productive use of it. It's also a site of, I guess, settler origin story for the community. You know, it's, it's considered um, a thing of beauty to a lot of non-native people. There's just kind of this, you know, obliviousness to how the dam was essentially a weapon of cultural erasure for, in this case, the Winnemuwintu people, right? Because they were forcibly removed from their river um, through different machinations of the BIA and the Bureau of uh, Reclamation uh, to dis dispossess some of their allotment land. When the Winnemuwintu are trying to tell their story, when they're trying to explain um, why the dam shouldn't be raised again and they shouldn't be flooded out because there still hasn't been justice for what happened the first time. My name is Sheridan Noileni Inamoto. It was a vision that came to Chief Colleen Sisk after uh, actions on not raising the Shasta Dam further, another 18 feet. The Shasta Dam and the building of hydropower um, water infrastructure has had drastic, if not deadly, effects on the Winnemum went to. So much of that water when it became a reservoir, it was covered up entire sacred sites and towns, which were villages at one point, burial sites, cemeteries had to be moved. It had really detrimental impacts for the Winnemum went to. And they wanted to raise the dam even further, which would continue that desecration of Winnemum went to lands. That led to a vision of doing a war dance on the Shasta Jam and bringing awareness about what was happening that, you know, 18 feet is too much. We believe, you know, that the salmon are water keepers. They are climate changers. They are essential to all water in California, that they are essential to the cleaning of the riverbeds to keep the water clean for everything that drinks it. And so we uh, began this prayer journey, um, and and when we began, we started from the ocean, like when the adult salmon come in, 
and followed it all the way up to the McLeod River and asking, one, for the salmon to take a different path. So this prayer is one that, you know, we are uh, asking a whole lot of different folks. We have a lot of young people that are coming out on the run for salmon. We have some older folks that are uh, tired of the way things have gone and that this is like uh, uh, some hope for change. And we've been doing it for six years. And, uh, you know, I think more and more people are hearing about it. More and more people are agreeing that, you know, maybe the, you know, the Department of Water Resources or the State Water Board or the ag business farms are not making the best choices for water distribution in California. And so, you know, we're hoping to sit down at the table with them, but, you know, they have this other list of uh, recognized tribes, and somehow they failed to put us on that list, and it's probably because our tribe sits right on Shasta Lake, which is thought to be, you know, the the um, the dam that brought the empire to California. But the fact is, we've always been there. We're still there. Even though they blocked us out as they did the salmon, we still return to our sacred places and we still sing to the water and dance there. And I don't think the United States knows what to do with us. In case of the Winnemum, the tribe can say, hey, this Shasta Dam, it's going to flood or damage 40 of our sacred sites. It's essentially going to end our Bahlas Chonas, our coming of age ceremony for young women, which is the ceremony that, you know, you know, you don't, you shouldn't need Western science to confirm this, but Western science confirms, you know, the, these ceremonies, uh, you know, reduce suicide rates, they improve community health in all these ways. Uh, they're just important ceremonies for weaving the fabric of the tribe together. They're, they're part of the recovery from genocide, right? They're an important part of recovery from genocide. And the tribe can say this, this project is going to um, curtail or end these ceremonies. Um, and the agencies can just say, well, sorry, um, we still are going to do it anyway. You know, in terms of, you know, I've been following the proposal to raise Shasta Dam for a long time. And I've been following, you know, the, the proposal to the first uh, uh, build two Delta tunnels and now a single Delta tunnel, which is going to pump uh, more water out of the San Joaquin, Sacramento Delta down south. And, um, you know, for, for salmon people, the, the Delta is really important um, place for, for young salmon and migrating salmon. And it's, and the salmon populations in California are really dependent on a healthy Delta as our, as our humans actually for, in terms of uh, the water quality. And that's something Chief Sisk and others can speak to in much better detail. These land management departments have tried to keep Native people off their lands through the settler colonial laws about land management and fishing and what is best for the environment. And it's often pushing Native people away from their traditions and, and life ways. We've been um, fighting back against settler colonialism for a very long time. You have been listening to Challenging Colonialism. 
hear more of this discussion with part three of this episode, which continues to explore indigenous resistance to dams and the fight to remove them in the context of colonialism. In this second part, you have heard from Chief Callian Sisk, Brittany Arona, Ron Reed, Beth Rose Middleton Manning, Sheridan Inomoto, Mark Dadigan, and Craig Tucker. Music for this episode has been written and performed by G. Gonzalez. Challenging Colonialism is produced by myself, Martin Rizzo Martinez, a historian, and Daniel Stonebloom, a public school administrator, and is produced with support from the California State Parks Foundation.